Well, today we have a special guest with, I say, a special topic here, uh, dealing with uh, cover crops and crop insurance. It certainly has been an issue that has come up over the last, I'm thinking, seven or eight years or so. And um, I just got to say that I have known uh, Ryan for I, I'm I'm gonna guess at least uh, six or seven years, not sure. But I first heard of Ryan. Uh, I'm I'm gonna say six or seven years ago, and and he was he was talking about crop insurance, and he was from the National Wildlife Federation. I'm like, what does the National Wildlife Federation have to do with anything in agriculture? I mean, honestly, Ryan, that was my first reason. That was my first thought. I get that a lot, yeah. I'm sure you do. But then I find out not only is the National Wildlife Federation interested in helping farmers uh, in their success and how they grow things, Ryan's also a farmer. So I'm like, okay, we got to listen to this guy. And I will tell you that uh, Ryan has probably done as much as anybody in, I'm going to say, the nation to help to impact, influence uh, crop insurance um, guidelines from a farmer's perspective. And that's how I'm going to frame it, Ryan. So you can take it from there. You can correct me if I'm wrong with my accolades for you, but yeah. you can take it from there and uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and dive into the dive into your pre- presentation. Yeah, that sounds good, Steve. I appreciate that introduction. Yep. Yeah, sure. so uh, yeah, so Steve is right. And, and yeah, I, I, I do get that a lot, um, especially early on as we started getting involved in advancing soil health. Um, and, and the reason why NWF decided that we needed to jump in on the crop insurance was basically for two reasons. One was that we saw this as a growing issue, um, especially as more and more farmers started adopting cover crops and soil health practices. The, the way that crop insurance was written and some of the rules and structures, and we'll talk about those here t- today, uh, just did, do not fit well. And so we saw this as an impending issue, and we know the, the importance of crop insurance, and I've been using crop insurance for a few years myself. So I farm in Wisconsin, uh, part-time mm-hmm. farm, uh, corn, soybeans, small grains, looking to get into identity-preserved grains. Um, and so over the next two years, I have a couple of goals from my farm in terms of developing some on-farm storage to make get access to some of those markets and then also to add some livestock grazing to some of the cover crops that I've uh, been growing. So, um, again, just continuing to try to push that, uh, that health of the soil. And so that's been my goal. Um, and it's been helpful for understanding uh, what we need to accomplish on crop insurance. Uh, like Steve mentioned, you know, there's, there's a lot of things going on here. Uh, and so I guess rather than dive into all of the big picture, I want to start sort of small and, and we'll work out from there. So like I mentioned, uh, and Steve, let me know if the slides aren't advancing. Uh, they are advancing on my computer. Okay, great. Um, so like I mentioned, the changing context, we've got crop insurance that was predominantly written and designed for between the 1930s and the 1980s. Um, the really big change in the 80s was that um, the subsidy got ratcheted up to encourage more participation of producers. Um, so we have rules that were written in that time period, and we have an always changing context. And, and you guys really represent 
the leading edge of that willingness to to change and adapt with the time. And so I'm sure you guys are all aware of the growing consumer demand for sustainability. Uh, just back in November, uh, Nielsen studies released a report that showed that it's now up to 77% of consumers are willing to pay more for sustainably sourced products. Uh, that number just two years ago was 64%, and two years before that was like 50%. So we're seeing a very significant trend. You're all familiar with some of the water quality issues, so we don't have to really belabor that point. And you, know, you guys represent farmers turning to soil health. Now, like I said, there's some issues here, and so I'm gonna we're gonna take some time and just walk through each of these individually. Uh, so there are some eligibility issues. Some of you have probably heard of some of these rules that have been in place for the last four or five years. Um, and unfortunately, those rules were, I would say, prejudice against soil health practices. And that would not be a, a that would not be a misstatement. We had specific rules placed upon us that other producers did not have to do. We had extra hoops to jump through, extra paperwork, and extra risk. If you got something wrong, you just lost your crop insurance. So um, that was an unfortunate reality that we had to go through. Uh, we're going to talk about that, and then there's some hope here. We're, we're, things are getting better. Then I've got three other components here, issues in crop insurance, and these are much more structural or fundamental. Um, these are the long-term changes. This is what we're going to be seeing, how crop insurance is going to have to evolve over time. And there are a number of folks working to help that happen. Um, so these are long, these three, these annual, annual contracts, the risk rating pools, APH calculation, I'll explain what those mean. Uh, but this is, in the end, this is going to get us towards a crop insurance system that works better with soil health practices. So just a, a quick story on some of the issues that we have been facing. Um, and sounds like we've got somebody from North Dakota, so this story might sound familiar. Some salinity issues going on, and a crop consultant who actually was the International Crop Consultant of the Year, um, Lee is just, he's just a wealth of knowledge. And he's telling the farmers and his, his clients that if they are going to be able to produce, they need to deal with the salinity issue. And, and some of the best ways to do that are no-till and cover crops. And unfortunately, the crop, and rule, crop insurance rules did not work very well with that. And so it came down to him telling his clients, you're going to have to make a choice. You either solve the problem or you hold on to insurance. That's a bad situation for producers to be in. And, and it's certainly unfortunate for the crop insurance system as a whole, because fundamentally, the crop insurance system should be rewarding producers for, for addressing some of these significant challenges. So we, this issue came to a head um, in the last few years, <clears throat> and we have some changes that have happened in the last farm bill. So I am happy to report that, um, well, let me just kind of lay this out again. So before the, the farm bill, some of us may sound familiar. So the crop insurance program referred to NRCS termination guidelines. So those were guidelines that NRCS created to provide advice to producers on when to terminate cover crops. And I'll show you another, a little part of that here shortly. Um, but that was the go-to standard. If you uh, were using cover crops and you met these guidelines, 
you're fairly safe. Now, of course, what happens when weather occurs and you are delayed in terminating those cover crops, you, if you fail to follow that, those, those guidelines, you just lost coverage. And that is not always the case if you are delayed in terminating weeds or delayed in applying fertilizer at the right time. So we had, like I said, a double standard going on here. Um, you could get documentation from an expert at the time when you're deviating in order to provide that justification. And that is, tot again, totally different than how other practices, agronomic practices were treated. <clears throat> then there's also the definition of termination, where they defined this, our, so risk management agency defined it as uh, termination as being when growth has ended. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't really give me a lot of confidence in whether or not my termination method met their stipulation. Uh, again, here, if they found that a field that was insured wasn't fully terminated, maybe you missed a streak or maybe the crops, maybe the, the covers were taking the time to die down, that could be, that uncertainty could be caused to drop you from coverage. And so we had to get that fixed. And then we also have this issue uh, with in, for those in a summer fallow situation, uh, where RMA really stuck to the guns and they simply said, everything has to be dead for one full year, which really defeats the purpose of cover crops. Now, I get it that there's certainly a moisture sensitivity issue in the arid west, uh, but one full year um, is considerably extreme, uh, especially considering that there are some variations here. You can have weeds growing that are taking up moisture and as long as you terminate those weeds, you know, two, three weeks before planting your insured crop, you're fine. So there's some, there were some consider, considerable uh, inconsistencies going on with RMA. All right, so how things change. So this is sort of the good news portion of, um, hey, things that we can take home and know that things are getting better, right? So in the 2018 Farm Bill, we've got a number of these things addressed. So instead of having separate eligibility requirements for your cover crops, they're now treated like every other agronomic practice. So that's through what's called the good farming practice process. So with that, if there's a question about whether or not what you're doing makes sense um, and gives the crop a chance to get a, an, a decent yield, it goes through that process. That only happens, it only occurs when uh, you, one, you have insurance and you have to file a claim for a loss, and two, the crop insurance company has some doubt about your practices. So you don't have to do anything beforehand. Um, so, so we've got rid of the double standard. So that was a big <laughs> jump. The guidelines are certainly, so the guidelines that NRCS provides, they're still available and they're still useful predominantly for, I would say, for those who are new to cover cropping. If they are just learning, just trying some new things, that's a good safe spot to know that if I do this, I've got coverage. But that's, that sounds like that isn't really necessarily this group. Um, and so I'll talk about the, that process a little bit more. We can ask, talk about some, ask some questions here. So two other things here that we changed, we got a clear definition of termination. So here's the new definition. This is gonna provide a lot more certainty for everybody here when they're thinking about how they're terminating cover crops. So the new definition is the date 
in which a farmer applies a practice that historically and under reasonable circumstances, so in reasonable weather circumstances, results in the termination of the cover crop. So if it's something that you've done in the past that has worked, and then you're good to go. And it's not a matter of when the crops die, it's when you apply that practice. So it provides a lot more clarity for farmers so that they know, that they know okay, uh, this is exactly when it happened. And also, when it comes to summer fallow, um, they, we're, we're still working on the details of this. And again, this has been a very long process with RMA. Uh, but we're getting them to be creating the space where farmers in a summer fallow situation don't have to terminate a year out. And as long as they've got some evidence that this works from other agronomic experts, they're good to go. So I want to pause there. I think this is a good junction to ask, see if there are any questions at this point. Okay. I open up. Thank you, Ryan, for that good uh, foundational part there. I open up the lines here. Anybody have a specific question for uh, Ryan at this point? A specific question. Maybe now's the time, Don, you had a question about rolling cover crops after soybeans have emerged and terminating that way. Is that uh, – are you on, Ryan? Can you just – or so Don, I mean, Don. If you could, uh, could reiterate that, that would be a good time to answer that. Yeah, Ryan, it's Don Donald in RCS in Indiana. And we're – our stormwater district purchased a roller crimper, and you know, we're still learning kind of how to, to use it. And uh, last year in Indiana was a terrible year to try to learn how to use it because the rye just didn't do what it wanted to do. And, and we ended up in, in, a, in, you know, in a case or two of, of – uh, when we wanted to kill the rye with a crimper, it was just too early and the rye wasn't growing well and we planted the beans and we came back over and we and we went over it again when the rye was at the maturity level we hoped to, uh, would, they would die with a crimper. You know, the beans are like the second trifolia. And, uh, you know, of course, we're not sure exactly how that all impacts crop insurance, but, but is, you know, and it does that fit into this, uh, you know, what is supposed to be working and all that kind of thing. We, we didn't have any issues. The beans done fine. Um, you know, if it wasn't impact, it was because of the dry weather early and the rye taking some moisture out of the ground. But, but where does that all fit in, in what we're talking about here? Yeah, Don, this is actually a really good example of how things have changed. So two years ago, if you guys would have gone through this, um, and, and technically um, last year, so that we, you're still under those old rules, um, farmers who were using those cover crops, according to these rules, would have had to have gone out and get agronomic, two agronomic experts to ad provide written advice on how to terminate that cereal rye in that delayed situation. So the, the growing conditions were not typical or appropriate for the, the termination that you had planned, um, or their, the growth just wasn't quite there. They weren't elongated enough for rolling, rolling cripping to work. And so you would have had to have gone out and get documentation. Um, now, the, the way that things work in the starting in the 2020 cropping year, so again, 2019, we're still under the old rules, not enough time for USDA to fully implement these. So for 2020, um, what we're looking at is that you wouldn't have to do anything in particular. Just find what you think would work best and implement it. So in your situation, the beans yielded just fine 
case closed, there's no issues. We don't have to do extra paperwork. We don't have to go around and, and worry about that. Now, if you're, um, if you're at the time, if you're curious or concerned about crop insurance coverage, then what you what I would recommend, and this is true for any farmer who's dealing with you know wet weather and you can't get out there and side dress or um, you can't get out there and control weeds, is to talk to an expert and just get a little advice and say what's my next best option. And if you do that, then you've preserved you've you've done your due diligence and you've preserved your eligibility. So that in your the end, time? yeah. So my, my, and you may be wondering, you know, you may be thinking about this question may be coming and I'm not sure what your answer might be, but what, are, what qualifies an expert? <laughs> that was my question, yeah. Ryan, but yes, yes. <laughs> Go ahead, Dan Tower. Yeah. Are you, is no, you no, that? I, I've had people call me and, and, and who's an expert? And I, you know, yeah. basically it's, it's, it's wide open as, as what I see it. Obviously we think of it a district conservation and extension agent, but uh, the reality is many times an experienced farmer is a lot better expert than, than those folks. You know, yeah. it, we know it depends. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so there's two, there's two things here. So one is the RMA does have a definition of an expert. So there are some minimum standards here. So you guys mentioned one, so extension. So if somebody is employed as an extension agent, they would be considered an expert. Uh, somebody who is a certified crop consultant or certified agronomist, as well as a land-grant university researcher employed at a land-grant university to conduct research on agronomic crops. This last farm bill has added one additional category for conservation practices, so things like cover crops, and that is NRCS agent. <laughs> Now, as, as Dan mentioned, um, you know, there are oftentimes there are a lot of farmers that know a lot more about this than some of these um, defined experts. And so that's that's up to you then to help educate that person uh, so that uh, educate that expert so that they know that um, they can then advise you what you know needs to be done. So and this is a. It's kind of a clunky system in crop insurance, but it's a necessary part to ensure that farmers aren't gaming the system. So as much as it's a headache, it's also good to help defend and protect crop insurance. Um, and it's, and it, but the, the important thing here is that it applies to all practices now, not just soil health practices. And, and I guess, Ryan, my, my question is, is, has there been any, any pushback when someone quote said that this person is an expert so from in terms of rma um no so they if you have found somebody who meets one of those qualifications then in their book they're an expert so so in other words don could have signed off on that that you know and they were doing the best they could under the circumstances but whether it was outside of the the control so, you know, farmer did the best job possible. Right. Yep. That's correct. Well, I would just say that at least we have a, um, a good option now that will allow for some, I just, you know, for some further practices. I know that could get into a gray area, but at least we have that option now. So I think that's, 
I think we can celebrate that. Uh, even though it's murky in one way, it's, I think from the, speaking as a farmer, I would rather have it a little murky than really cut and dried in this case. So I'm, uh, I'm glad for this position for this, uh, yeah. this, this, this uh, update. Oh yeah. <laughs> it, it's going in the right direction. Right. Okay. Any other quick comment or follow up? We need to move on. Okay, Ryan. Let's uh, right, cool. keep going, wrap her up, and we'll have time for some more questions in. Yeah, okay, sounds good. So this is the, the um, termination guideline map. So again, for producers new to cover cropping, so for a lot of you, this is probably old or you guys are well beyond this. Um, the point here, I, and I've heard somebody was in Oklahoma, so under the new rules, what this means is that if you've got uh, you, know, you look through the, you know, through the plains where the, the zones or the termination deadlines change rather quickly. Um, under the new rules, these really don't apply. I've known producers in central Oklahoma that terminated after planting, and they're in this orange zone too. Well, they had to basically drop their insurance coverage. Well, now they qualify for, ins for insurance coverage uh, because they can prove that this works and makes sense. So, like I said, so this is still useful for new people, but for experienced cover croppers, you guys are well beyond that. So, like I mentioned, there are some of these other more structural issues, and I'm just going to try and go through these rather quickly. Um, just to, the goal here is that um, there, these, there are these fundamental components to crop insurance and how it works, and in each of these areas, um, they do not adequately consider for the risk mitigating capacity of soil health practices. And so they essentially disincentivize farmers from using these practices. And so in all three of these levels, we're trying to fight to get that corrected. So I'm going to walk you through that real quickly. So with crop insurance, it's an annual contract. You don't insure for five or 10 years. And so you insure every annual, every time, every March 15th, you sign up for new crop insurance coverage. So what that means is that the program is not designed to reward for carryover effects of the previous season. So simple things like erosion, managing for infiltration or compaction, salinity, managing the, the weed seed bank, or building your soil organic matter over a period of years doesn't enter into the equation. I mean, the most obvious one is that they do not consider the impact of crop rotation on the insurable yield. And so somebody who's farming a corn, corn, corn system versus somebody who does corn, beans, oats, alfalfa, that corn is going to be treated with the same level of risk. And I'll show you some examples that that's not the, the true case. Okay, here's the second structural issue, something that we're trying to correct, is the risk rating pool. So uh, everybody's familiar with the basics of insurance, that we all get grouped into a pool, either through our employer or through some other means, and we get insured together. That's how insurance companies uh, need to work to sort of balance out the risk. Now, within that pool, there are some people who are slightly higher risk and some that are slightly lower. But the important thing in healthcare and auto insurance and all these others is that within that pool, they account for behavioral changes, different risk levels that we take upon ourselves. So the biggest example is smoking versus not smoking. 
significant different pricing in premiums and oftentimes separate insurance pools. In crop insurance, that's not how it works. We are all placed in a, a pool based on our county. Now that's a good way to count, account for weather variation. We all experience the same weather, but it doesn't account for our capacity because of our practices for how we manage that risk. So, uh, so my suggestion here is long-term that we should get into a situation where we have different pools for counties or for groups of counties um, and based on practices so that we can account for that difference in risk. All right, so the third factor here is um, the APH, um, and that is approved production history. So basically your average yield or over a number of years. So they use a 10-year rolling yield history to establish that APH. Now the big assumption here, so that's fine, you can use that rolling average. That, that's, that's a reasonable thing to do. Here's the problem. They assume that the same yield variation regardless of practices. And so, um, and the other assumption here is that there's somehow less risk with higher averages. Now, we, we're starting to see some studies that are showing that average really doesn't reflect your true level of risk. As some of you have experienced, I know I've experienced this, where if I adopt some of these practices, my average might go down by just a tiny smidge, but it also, I don't have those big variations anymore. Everything is just consistent year in and year out right by the average, which means that I no longer file any claims. I just don't have losses that are, are claimable. So other farmers can have a higher average, but they also have a much wider swing in that year-to-year -year variation. Now that's a high-risk situation for crop insurance companies. So this was a study out of Canada a few years ago, so I just want to highlight this. These are this was a long-term 31-year study looking at this. So basically, what we've been what we've known all along, uh, but again, these experts have quantified it, so it's helpful to that they made the case for us. Short, short rotations um, had the highest chance of lowest yield. So like I just mentioned, the biggest swing. Uh, tillage in this situation widened the yield curve. So higher highs on those really perfect weather years, but lower, lowers, lower lows on the really tough years. And in particular, crop rotation really proved out in yield stability in those really challenging weather years. So these are the exact practices that crop insurance should be rewarding, except Structurally, they just can't figure that out. And I wanted to get to this, uh, this graph here on, on your right. And so this is a good way to sort of try to illustrate this. The top graph is a, we'll, we'll call that a conventional production practice yield curve. So the further to the right that you go, you might have a higher average. And so that peak of that graph is your, is your yield average. So that's fine, but you'll notice that it's also a wider curve, which means that you have much more yield variation year to year. And so you're more prone to wild yield swings based on the weather. As opposed to the graph on the bottom, which has a lower average, its, it's peak is to the left, but it also is a very narrow graph. And so it has very little yield variation. The key point here is the crop insurance companies pay out any time the yield gets in that darkened or shaded area. 
So that means if it's a bigger shaded area, it's costing them more money. And if we're not encouraging producers to manage these risks, there are some structural fundamental issues here. So let me lay out two more slides and then I'll open up for questions. So what maybe some of you have felt this, I felt this way. Because of all these structural issues in crop insurance, I'm, I'm starting to wonder what's my return on investment. If I'm not getting a payout after six, seven, eight years, then why am I putting all this money? It's, it, it should be a question we should be asking of any input, right? Uh, these are tough times, so we should constantly be evaluating and making that decision. And if the premium doesn't match a return, we're going to start asking that question. Here's the problem. If this 9% and this their survey proves out true, these are the farmers that are least risky. That means they are providing more premium than they're costing the program, which means they're subsidizing other farmers, other more risky farmers. So if they start to opt out, that means that the crop insurance program has to re-rate everybody else who's still in the pool. That means the premiums go up because we don't have that subsidy. That happens, then the next group of, of low-risk producers opt out. It's called the death spiral in insurance. So there's a potential if they don't address these core issues that we could see a destabilization of the entire insurance program. So it's imperative that we see some of these changes. So this is going to take some time, but this last farm bill was the first step. And we're, we're hoping is that we start, it's a, we, we, we call it a two farm bill strategy. We, we got the first step done. Now the next step is going to be laid out in the next farm bill. And at that point, we should start to see some of these issues getting addressed. So I'm going to open it up there um, for other questions. Well, that, that's that's really that last thing you brought out there, Ryan, um, is is quite insightful because I hadn't I hadn't thought about it, taking it to that level. That I mean, you I could see some momentum here where this could almost uh, hopefully, and I think maybe you can comment on this, but it'll actually incentivize farmers from a crop insurance perspective to actually start using soil health practices, including cover crops. Right? Absolutely. Is that not attainable? Okay. Yeah. That that is that is attainable if we change some of these things, how, how they equate average, uh, yield average to risk, if they start considering for the, the different, those different graphs for different practices, mm -hmm. then it should reduce the premium. So farmers who start switching will see a reduced cost. Fundamental to the crop insurance program, not an added subsidy, but fundamental, this is your true reflection of risk. Mm -hmm. And what we could see is that if you're paying maybe $15 an acre now, if you're going to soil health practices, two things will happen. So one, the soil health practices, that price could go down to maybe $10 an acre. Mm -hmm. If you're still continuing in the conventional practices, again, if we're getting more specific, that means that those prices are probably going to go a little higher, more like instead of 15 more like $18, yeah, $19. Yeah, that'll so get some farmers' about, attention. <laughs> that'll get some attention, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have one. Oh, Go ahead, Don. Go ahead, Don. Well, I was just going to say, and, and and all that being said, then the administration came out yesterday with their proposed budget for 2020 with a significant decrease in the subsidy for crop insurance, and and where would that all play if that came out? 
Yeah, so that's an across-the-top haircut. Um, and I, I wasn't sure if that was, yeah, I believe that's in the administration and overhead as well as the harvest price option. I know they've been pushing that the last couple of years. So it doesn't change the message here. What that would change, would it would change to some extent some of the participation uh, of farmers. Um, and some of the, predominantly would change the insurance levels that they select. So if they're hysterically insuring at 80 or 85% coverage, they might drop down to 70 or 75%. Um, because that would provide the same cost, maybe at a little bit of a reduced coverage level. So that would be the biggest impact of those budget decisions. But even well, in that new situation, that plays out. Yeah, even in that new situation, all of this still remains true. We still need mm -hmm. better accuracy to reward some of these better practices. Few things here on the chat. Um, our, our our buddy Fletch up in uh, North Dakota. <clears throat> um, he's asking a question here. What about interseeding in a situation like seeding red clover with spring wheat, for example? And I know that's kind mm -hmm. of a a tried and true practice from decades ago, but it's kind of being reborn again. What about that, Ryan? Yeah, so you know the good thing is, like like you mentioned, that's a that's a tried and true practice that's pretty historic at, um, in a lot of regions. And so if that has some historic founding of being a practice even 10, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. generally mm -hmm. it, it's going to have insurance coverage. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the the key here is if you have even just a if there's some sort of doubt that you can whether or not it's insurable, whether or not your crop insurance company will insure it. Even just mm -hmm. having one study in state from a land grant um, that shows that, hey, this makes sense, um, mm -hmm. having that handy, uh, you know, that's, that's so important for having that conversation. And oftentimes the mm -hmm. best way is just go talk to that agent directly, educate them, and then they'll feel comfortable and you can move on with, the, with coverage. Okay, other questions from anybody? <clears throat> John uh, from Ohio, I'll unmute you if you have a question. Your your line's a little loud. I had to unmute you. Do you have a question for me, John? I want to give you a chance. No, no, I've been trying okay. to keep Okay, that, that, that's fine. Okay, any other people have a question here for Ryan about crop insurance? Well, if there's, uh, I have another question, Ryan. What, what do you do with, uh, let's just call a... Uh, I'm not sure what word to use here, either uh, an ignorant or an arrogant uh, crop insurance person who just isn't really up to speed in this. I know they're supposed to be, but I have heard, I've heard of this, where some mm -hmm. of the, the actual agents, they're not really uh, favorable to some of this newer stuff and maybe just uninformed. How do you recommend mm -hmm. a farmer or anybody that comes to kind of with someone like it? What, what, is the, what should they do when they run into someone who's really kind of trying to throw water on this, some of these new uh, options we have with crop insurance and cover crops. Yeah. The simple thing is do like I did, find a new agent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you literally found a new that. agent. Oh, yeah. Okay. I went, yeah, okay. I, I called uh -huh. around and, um, and just started asking these agents their knowledge level of how they treat cover uh -huh. crops. And when I found one that said, you know, I don't know, but I will go learn. Ooh. That was an indication to me, like, okay, I can work with that person. 
I, and I'm so, assuming you're you're trying to you could be the teacher there a little bit, uh, which is good. Oh yeah, absolutely. They 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 they, they like having me because uh, I'm the guinea pig, and they can ask me questions. Mm-hmm. So uh, okay. Uh, but yeah, that's yeah. I mean that's the important thing that that person you know they they may they may change their tune to to close the deal mm-hmm. and get you signed up, but when mm-hmm. there's an issue, you need to depend on mm-hmm. that person to stand up for you. Right. You know? They're gonna they're gonna go back to true colors when push comes to shove. Sure. Well, uh, Fletcher from North Dakota just chatted in here. Um, he meant appeal. Uh, you know, you can appeal this sometimes if you need to go that far. And he said they tend to side with farmers. So I don't know if that's a North Dakota thing or what, but uh, that's just a comment from from a farmer from uh, North Dakota here. So I don't know if you have a follow up on that, Ryan. If you need it, can you appeal? What's the process of that? Anything on appealing, Brian? Do you know anything about that? If you need to appeal? Are you still there, Ryan? Um, numbers in Oh. Well, I see Susanna has her mic open. Do you have a question, Susanna? Yeah. I am in northwest Indiana. I'm a grazing land specialist. And we're starting to see more interest in folks grazing their cover crops in the past it's been a matter of the attitude well if i plant something and i can get them out there for a little bit that's fine but we're seeing more and more people that are really bringing grazing into the overarching management system to where they're really trying to plan for forage availability as well as utilizing the soil health principles I'm wondering how that is affected by the crop insurance. Yeah, not a whole lot changes there, Susanna. It's, um, the key thing there is that um, crop insurance, the, the companies and the agents are going to be looking at termination of that cover crop. Um, and depending on the cover crop, you know, a good solid grazing would accomplish that and others it would not. And so if you don't fully terminate that cover crop before planting that insured crop, they're going to have some questions and concerns. So the key thing there is obviously, so go out and graze it, um, but then terminate it in whichever way to make sure that you meet those needs and then plant your insured crop. Obviously the challenge becomes your herbicide rotations and restrictions and trying to figure out everything with grazing. Um, And so that's why we need experts like you to really be able to provide that guidance. And the actual season of grazing, whether they're planting something early in the spring to be able to graze and then plant their regular cash crop, or whether we're harvesting wheat in June and planting a cover crop to graze, or we're grazing in the fall, none of that really is is part of the part of a challenge from the crop insurance aid side. Right. That's. I mean, they. You do whatever you want with that cover crop during the fall, if it's after small grains or during the spring, mm-hmm. if you're going to, you know, late planting of beans um, or whatever, it, it, where they get interested and where they, where they come back into the equation is termination of that cover crop. Very good. Hey, great question, Susanna. It was good we got a little a grazing question in there. Other questions from anybody? Go ahead, Lloyd. Well, this is yeah, uh, this is a little bit more facetious, but uh, the old or the term that we use, uh, treat your cover crop like your cash crop. Is there any insurance coverage for that? So not at this point in time. Um, there is a 
Um, there are, I think there are a few crop insurance products for, for um, pastures, and those are typically tied to um, basically forage amount or biomass amount, so they're weather indexed. And so when the weather goes to a drought, then you could file a claim. Um, but I'm not sure if, if cover crops would necessarily qualify in that product. Otherwise, at this point in time, there are no products out there that ensure that cover crop growth and to compensate a producer if you experience some weather issues with that growth of the cover crop. That's a good question there, Lloyd. I actually never even thought about that. I think I might have heard about it once before, but um, that's just uh, an interesting thing to ponder there. Other questions from anybody? Dan, do you have a question? Well, just to follow up to that one, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you look at the growth that we've gotten in our cover crop so far. Now, maybe that's going to change mm-hmm. big time in the next 30 days. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. there'd be a lot of claims out there right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's an interesting, uh, that's one there for you to Ryan, Ryan to mull over. But yeah. Once again, you, you have to go back and look at the seeding date. Yeah, yeah. But the seeding date was affected by weather, most of it, most of the time, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I would I would generally say that I, I don't expect a product to develop anytime soon. There are just yeah. like you guys are sort of intimating, there's so many variables here. Right. The seeding date, the weather conditions, and the fact that, you know, we all have so many different goals in mind here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the key thing with the cash crop is, okay, we know it. And at the end, here's an immediate mm-hmm. measurable that a farmer goes through right. once a year. Right. And so that's easy yeah. to verify. Yeah. It gets to be a little more challenging when you're talking biomass or coverage. Mm-hmm. So great. I, I have a question and, and this is kind of out there on the extreme, but uh, working with a few innovators that are doing companion cropping. Mm-hmm. And so like it's, it's, you know, putting something in with the wheat with wide row spacings, uh, uh, I mean, I don't think there are any experts on that one. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and and that's that is sort of the next frontier, and that that's where I really wanted these rules changed in the farm bill. And so right now, I mean, if you guys are out there trying it and you have good confidence in it, you're able to go do it and you don't lose eligibility. The issue becomes in the situation where the farmer experiences a yield loss, it could be totally because of weather, but they may question it because of the different practices. Then you'll need to draw in some experts who would take a look at that. Now, obviously, if, if we can have some land-grant universities document some yield evidence, um, that would be really significant. So all you researchers out there, please, or <laughs> contact the land-grants, please twist their arms and get them to do some of this cool stuff because it really helps in the in these new new rules, it provides that cover for innovators to go out there and then implement it. Mm-hmm. And and I hate to bust your bubble, Ryan, but the, we go to land grant universities and they're going to say, "Show me the money." Yeah, I know <laughs> it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a, so there, it's the yep. Go ahead. I, I, w- I would just add. So there is um, potential. I mean, another model to look at to provide documentation of some of these practices. A good example is Practical Farmers of Iowa, where they mm-hmm. gather up some farmers and they apply scientific measurement 
documenting the, the practice itself and proving out the yields. And that would stand up in an arbitration case on crop insurance. Hmm. And so that hmm. could be your expert to turn to. Hmm. So that could be probably a state by state kind of a deal there, right, Ryan? <clears throat> or or does, does the practical farmers, do they go outside of Iowa for any of their stuff? I know they're primarily centered there. Yeah, they're primarily, primarily focused in Iowa. They're, they're working with some farmers in Minnesota and Wisconsin now. But, um, you know, I think there are a number of organizations, like you said, Steve, at, at the state level yeah. that could yeah. replicate that model. That right. Could work with them. Right. Good. Okay, these are great questions. Other questions, quick. We're, we're winding up here. we got to wind up in a couple minutes, but I don't want to – there's some pressing questions. Uh, anybody have any more questions? Okay, I'll just do a few housekeeping announcements, and I'll get a chance one more time for questions. Uh, next week, I am going to the country of Hungary, and um, we'll be uh, presenting over there to some previous groups I've been before, but also – uh, what's really cool is the um, I'm planning on um, meeting with the world's largest vegetable processor named Bonduel. Been talking to them for a while, and um, so uh, having said that, there will be no webinar next week as I'm out of the country. But the following week, I want to report in as to what I'll be doing, what my you know experience was over there, and then just to give you a little bit of a, a heads up. We have uh, Bob Recker, who is associated with wide row corn, 60-inch corn uh, coming in. And right there, that's a crop insurance probably issue. But uh, but uh, he's going to talk about 60-inch corn and, you know, how you can make that work. And uh, probably not for everybody, but going to have Bob in there. And we have Abby Wick, who I've been wanting to have on here for a while because she's from North Dakota, and I consider her one of the – experts on dealing with salinity issues and uh, actually I see that Fletch actually mentioned her he goes to her for some um, uh, some advice and so forth so I was able to meet her when I spoke out that way this past December so she's going to be on for talking about salinity issues uh, so it's an area that I certainly don't have much experience on but a topic comes up so I wanted to bring someone on who's able to do that and then later on in, in April, I'm really excited to be able to get Rowan Atwood from Wrangler Jeans. Uh, you guys have, have been listening to me for a while. I've heard of my involvement there where Wrangler Jeans is uh, putting forth what I would consider a valiant effort to incentivize, encourage their cotton farmers to use soil health principles and use cover crops. So it's a real honor to have uh, someone like him that I'll be interviewing him just to see a little bit where I think uh, this represents where the future of agriculture may be going, where some of these larger companies, corporations are going to be essentially requiring a certain amount of soil health and sustainability uh, in their products. Ryan mentioned at the very outset today that 75% of people are willing to pay a little bit more for sustainably grown um, uh, food or whatever. Whether or not that'll, it's one thing to say that, we all know, it's another thing for actually will they open their wallets up. Uh, I will say this, that it certainly is something that I see it as an opportunity that, that we as uh, cover crop or soil health people can can tap into. So uh, that's what's coming up. So I'll circle back around. Any more questions for Ryan while he's still on the phone? Well, 
Steve, Steve. Yeah. Quick question about your your guy from Levi's. I yeah. did just it's Wrangler. It's Wrangler. Oh, Wrangler. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think that's the one that ju is just offering their stock is is going public. Oh, I don't so know. I could see the tie-in between what they're doing with the <laughs> whole cover crop effort and and their stock offering. Well, that's interesting. Don't know. I'll follow up on it. <clears throat> I do know that Wrangler put out a last year a um, kind of a marketing campaign that was tough denim, gentle footprint. I think it's a pretty powerful one. He said they're unveiling a new one here in uh, in the middle of April. He's going to talk us talk to us about. So they're they're really on it. So hey, you never know, Dan. Yep. Could be. Um, Okay, any other quick questions for Ryan while he's on today? Okay, thank you all. Appreciate your great questions. Thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate what you're doing. And yeah, uh, keep up yeah, well. keep up keep up the good work. You're you're making an impact out there. And I was just speaking as a farmer, we appreciate it, what you're doing, and uh, yeah, keep up the good work there. So uh, thank everybody for uh, being on today. I'll see you in about two weeks. And as always, stay curious and keep learning.